0: Okay, the, the light is right in front of you.
1: And do y'all see it? Shift colors. Can you yeah. see it? I mean, it's like kind of gets reddish. Yeah, it's reddish.
0: Yeah, yeah. Who wants to look at it in the binoculars? Me. Okay, there's the binoculars.
1: I'm standing in a moonlit pasture on a ranch outside of Marfa, Texas. It's nearly midnight in the middle of July. I'm squinting into the darkness, looking at, well, I'm not sure exactly what I'm looking at. Is that one up there on the far left?
0: Nope, that's a car. Oh. Coming
1: from Alpine. (laughs) That's where you go over that railroad track on
0: 67.
1: That's Mike Shirley. He's giving me and a few friends his personal tour of the famous Marfa Marfa lights. For the uninitiated, folks have been observing strange glowing orbs in this area since the 1800s. Though there are theories ranging from the scientific to the supernatural, no one knows exactly what they are. These mystery lights are just one of the many features of this area of West Texas that makes it different.
0: And we were sitting right here, and a week ago, one flew. I was sitting right by the front of my truck, and it flew right to to us to the front of my truck, went over the hood, went to the windshield, over the windshield, and then out the back over the car that was parked behind us, and then it disappeared. I, if I'd have if I'd known it was coming, I could have whacked it with my cane.
1: <laughs> There's a lot more than strange lights that distinguish this region of West Texas, known as the Trans-Pecos or the Big Bend. It lies just to the south of the Permian Basin. And while much of the Permian is flat as a sheet cake, the Big Bend country is marked by striking mountain ranges that break up the horizon of big sky and grassy plains. The red cliffs of the Davis Mountains mark its northern boundary, while the thin brown ribbon of the Rio Grande forms its southern border with Mexico. And it's definitely moving. Well, when, Whoa, when it's, nice. it's like, dude, it's moving quite a bit.
2: Wait, so that's not a car or a... No.
0: And this right
1: here, uh, when, what when the Mike f- up, Do y'all see that?
2: Yeah, that one, this yeah, was crazy.
1: really, really bright. Uh, what yeah.
0: the f- yeah. yeah, okay, right yeah. there's a red one. Yeah, I saw red, that's what I okay, saw. Okay, that one is the, that's the big daddy.
1: That's the big daddy? Yeah, that's,
0: wait, that's Barbara.
1: Boy, well, yeah, the, big, the big daddy named Barbara? Yeah. Okay, that's... I mean, if a boy can be named Sue, why can't he be named Barbara? No, you're absolutely right. Like the Permian Basin, this region relies on the land for much of its economy, but they're not drilling for oil and gas here. The beauty and solitude is the draw. There's the hikers at Big Bend National Park, artists in Marfa, stargazers in Fort Davis, rodeo cowboys in Alpine, honeymooners and Marathon, adventurers in Terlingua, and hunters on the sprawling ranches scattered throughout this wide open country. At night, there's nothing but velvety black sky overhead, and the occasional phantom orb. Here, there are no pump jacks, no flares, no wind turbines. At least, not yet. I'm Christian Wallace, and this is Boomtown. In our final episode, we spend some time exploring the rugged Big Bend region of far west Texas. Wildcatters have poked around for oil and gas in this area before, but the record-breaking production in the Permian Basin has pushed companies to explore areas further out. And a big find near the Davis Mountains has brought the boom to the Big Bend's doorstep for the first time. We talk with those who are grappling with how to make a living and still keep the beauty of the big bend intact. This is episode 11, The Last Frontier. So here's some horses for you to look at. Kind of got their winter coat on, don't they? They do and and
0: like these these particular three here are some older horses. So they're not going to quite look as pretty to the eye, but they have been helping me make a living for a long time.
1: That's Craig Carter. He's introducing me to some of his horses that have been featured in films and TV. We're on his ranch deep in the heart of the Big Bend country, over 20 miles from the nearest small town. What are their names? This is Rico.
0: And uh, Rico is 29 years old. Wow. Retired. 29 years old. hmm He was in the remake of The Alamo. Oh, cool. Lots of commercials. Cisco, if you... That's Cisco. And uh, he's probably been in 30
1: pictures. Wow. Craig Carter is a horseman, though he's hesitant to call himself that. For Craig and others like him, the term carries an almost spiritual heft, a title that has to be earned. But Craig is modest. He spent most of his 57 years making a living on horseback and his skills have made him a sought-after animal wrangler for Hollywood Productions.
0: And then I got a bunch out here that were in uh, 12 Strong. As far as something recent, No Country for Old Men. Oh, the remake of The Magnificent Seven. Oh yeah? Most of these these were in that. Cool. We put together 250 head of horses for that show. It was absolutely crazy, mind-boggling.
1: Last year, Craig spent seven months away from his family working on movie sets in Virginia and elsewhere around the country.
0: I've got some horses that uh, that were born in Mexico, and they're tough, not always real big, and not beautiful conformation. Rico, on his best day, would be laughed out of a horse show in our great state of Texas, but. When it comes to traversing this rough country, and, and I, I say pretty is as pretty does. Mm-hmm.
1: When I shook Craig's hand the first time I met him earlier that morning, I noticed he had the same calloused hands as a roughneck. When we stepped inside his home to talk, he removed his sweat-stained silver belly hat and didn't put it back on till he stepped out later to pee off the front porch. Craig was raised in the big bend. His roots there run deep. His mom's side of the family were among the first white settlers in the region over a century ago, back when the region's population was largely made up of Mexican immigrants who worked the quicksilver mines. Craig's family settled in the basin of the Chisos Mountains, near the center of Big Bend National Park. The Carters ran the only horse riding outfit in the park. Craig took to the work even as a young boy. When he was 12 and faced with the prospect of spending six hours shuttling back and forth to the nearest middle school, he convinced his parents to let him homeschool so he could spend more time riding. So back then I was
0: horseback every day. You know, the park is 1,100 square miles, so I felt like that was my backyard. And then we had the family history there, so I would go visit places that I'd heard stories about from uncles and aunts that knew my great-grandparents and stuff. Yeah, so uh, the, the the whole park is it's just phenomenal. There's some oases out in the desert that, that they're not a lot a lot of them are not written about and known about,
1: but just spectacular places. Based on the records his dad kept, Craig estimates he's ridden the South Rim Trail through the Chisos Mountains some seven hundred times.
0: The the Chisos Basin is like an island of, of mountains jutting up surrounded by desert. It's undescribable. It's spectacular. The south rim is 76, 7,800 feet, and it breaks off, and you can see 112 miles of the Rio Grande making the Big Bend. On a clear day, they say you can see 260 miles in the distance. Uh, Our horse ride left from the Chisos Basin at about 5,000 feet, and the first three and a half miles we climbed 1,800
1: feet. It's, it's, it's uh, drastic. For a kid who loved riding horses and was fascinated by the Western novels of Louis L'Amour, the setting was practically heaven. The surrounding desert is one of the most ecologically diverse regions in North America. Craig would spot deer, mountain lions, black bears, coyotes, foxes, bobcats, and plenty of rattlesnakes. There were people too, though they were spread out and relatively few about one person for every square mile. Uh, you know, as a kid
0: uh, growing up out here, I'd drive 60, 80 miles just to go find a, a party, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, what were the parties like, out of curiosity? I
0: can remember 200 people being at the park entrance uh, on the west side, just cars all parked, got together, played a little jam session and hanging out in the desert
1: sleep there that night? Just kind of... We'd
0: all go home because we had to work. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, bonfires at somebody's little casita, mm-hmm. you know, not not in the park. No, no open fires there, but
1: Terlingua and Lajitas and, uh, you know, dancing in the dirt. While his mom gave him school lessons, Craig's dad taught him acoustic guitar. On weekends, Craig and his dad would drive over to the tourist hotspot of Lajitas, a tiny village on the banks of the Rio Grande. They'd start their gig at noon and play country music for 10 or 12 hours straight. Craig's love for music eventually grew as big as his passion for horses. He started dreaming about moving to Nashville to be a songwriter. But not even in his wildest daydream could he have imagined his big break would end up coming from... Switzerland. Yep. One day, while working at the family's dude ranch, he met a Swiss country singer. He's like the George Strait of Europe. Wow. Cool. What's his name? George Hoog. H-U-G. Yeah. almost rose off the tongue just like George Strait. Right, right. (laughs) George had flown to Nashville to record an album, and afterward, he jumped in an RV and drove down to Big Bend. He came to ride horses at the park, and that's where he bumped into Craig. They quickly became friends.
0: And he wrote me a letter uh, a few months later, said, would you be interested in coming to play in Switzerland in August? And I wrote back so there would be no misunderstanding. I just wrote back, hi, George, thank you, August, open. So about 75 trips later to Mm. to Europe, I've, I've had kind of a career over there. Cool.
1: Craig did eventually move to Nashville to try his hand as a songwriter. The plan was to make some money so he could help his father, who was still leading trail rides in the park, buy their own piece of land in West Texas. In the mid-90s, after years of scraping their savings together, they finally managed to fulfill their dream of owning their own ranch.
0: The, the name of the place when we came here was Burro Flaco, mm-hmm. which means skinny donkey. Mm-hmm. And, I, and the the creek that you crossed right before you mm-hmm. turned, it comes through part of the the, the northwest of our, on, on our property is called Spring Creek. Mm-hmm. So we named the ranch Spring Creek. But I tell everybody it's still a little bit
1: flaco sometimes. <laughs> yeah,
0: sure.
1: <laughs> Only a year and a half after they bought the place, Craig's father passed away suddenly. Money got tight. Craig was still living in Nashville at the time, but decided to return home. To make things work financially and keep the land, Craig had to get creative. In addition to his work as a touring musician, he acted in a couple small commercials. He quickly realized that there was a lot more work behind the camera than in front of it. He got his first gig as a horse wrangler on a movie called Dancer Texas. He's been working on movie sets with animals ever since.
0: They used to call him Head Wrangler. Mm -hmm. Now they're kind of gravitating to Animal Trainer, Mm -hmm. Animal Coordinator. Mm -hmm. But if I'm your Animal Coordinator and it's your show, I'm going to handle all the animals or all the reptiles or whatever. So even though I'm not uh, a lion handler or don't work with bears, I know who to call to facilitate it for you, my boss.
1: Craig has figured out a way to make it work, but like other landowners in the region, he still has to make tough decisions to keep afloat. Several years ago, he was approached by a major oil company looking to develop some leases on his land.
0: And, and the way that developed is we would get a letter asking if we'd be interested in talking. And, and we, we said, no, thank you, not at this time. Mm-hmm. We didn't say, no, don't contact us.
1: Right.
0: Left the door cracked. Mm-hmm. And, and they send you letters saying that they think they could lease for this amount, this amount. And it, it wasn't enough to make a difference. Right. Well, Then all of a sudden it turned into enough to make a difference. So that's when we actually met with them and talked with them. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it never did develop and come to pass but it's back to paying the bills and, and in that regards i don't judge people so harshly about what they might have on their place maybe they needed it at the time maybe maybe they're not happy about the decision but that's where i think respect big ben can come in
1: respect big ben is an initiative launched in 2019 with support from the cynthia and george mitchell foundation It was formed in part to give landowners access to research and legal support when they're approached by energy companies looking to develop on their land. Craig was approached by Respect Big Ben to join their stakeholders group. And so I was asked to come attend the meeting with this group
0: and was honored to go listen. And my biggest uh, positive thought about them doing this is that they're having the conversation. Where it leads and how it goes, uh, it's going to be different situations for every situation that comes. But I just love the fact that they're having the conversation about the small towns, about the land, about how, how this might change that and what we could do, how we could be smart here.
1: The idea behind Respect Big Ben came from Mary Lou Hastings.
2: Hi, I'm Mary Lou Hastings. I'm the Vice President of Sustainability Programs at the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation in Austin, Texas.
1: She's worked for the Mitchell family in various roles for 24 years. She started in the woodlands, working on a sustainable communities project that George Mitchell funded along with the National Academy of Sciences. She met her husband, Mitch, while working there. Today, Mary Lou runs several programs at the Mitchell Foundation, which focus on topics ranging from clean energy to water conservation and sustainable education. But the Respect Big Bend initiative is closest to her heart. For one thing, Mary Lou is from West Texas.
2: So I grew up in Midland. My dad was a petroleum engineer, and we also have a family ranch in the Panhandle. And I grew up driving up and down state highway 385 with my dad and my mom of course and as you know highway 385 goes from the big bend way up north but it runs near odessa right to our family ranch
1: mary lou and mitch spent their honeymoon in big bend national park in one of the cabins nestled in the basin of the chisos mountains where craig carter's family once ran their dude ranch it was december 1998 and an epic ice storm swept through The roads were closed and the power went out, so they had to hole up in the room for four days, eating by the light of a Coleman lantern.
2: When we finally went down, we went to Santa Elena Canyon, that that overlook on the east side. And my husband was an economist and he studied water, but specifically he did a lot of work and he was doing a lot of work at the time on the Rio Grande. He'd never seen the Rio Grande, he was from Kansas, and uh, he did a lot of work in Latin America and Brazil but he'd never been to the park before. So the one and only place I got to take him on our honeymoon was Santa Elena Canyon.
1: Flanking both sides of the Rio Grande, the canyon is formed by sheer walls of pink and cream-colored limestone rising up to 1500 feet above the water. It's a place I know well. My friends and I have spent days paddling through Santa Elena Canyon Above you, bighorn sheep scale the steep walls, and canyon wrens glide like paper airplanes. As you wind through the canyon, there are hidden, fern-filled valleys to explore. And when the river bends, the stony banks that have formed there make for ideal picnic or camping spots. It's a humbling experience, and one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. For Mary Lou, the canyon has become deeply significant. She and Mitch made regular trips to the national park and would often return to Santa Elena to admire the winding Rio Grande. Six years after they honeymooned there, Mary Lou found out she was pregnant with their first child. But on the same day the couple got the best news of their life, they also received the worst. Mitch was diagnosed with colon cancer. Mary Lou gave birth to their daughter in June of 2005. Her husband died three weeks later. Before he passed, they settled on a name. They called their daughter Elena, after the canyon they had loved. It was around this time that the shale boom took off, in part thanks to the fracking innovations of her employer, George Mitchell. A decade later, the boom had expanded into places that had never been developed before, the southern periphery of the Permian Basin, right on the doorstep of the Big Bend country.
2: And so my two worlds started colliding So, I became very interested in asking the question, to what extent will there be development out here, and if there is going to be development, what is it going to look like? And if it's going to look bad, what do we do? Because landowners have, and mineral owners have rights to develop their land and extract resources, but are they fully informed about the impact that that will have, and what science can we provide them? What information can we provide them so that they're making the best possible decisions or arrangements that they can? Texas is the only state in the country that produces oil and gas that does not have what we call a surface, any surface damage protection for landowners. There are some requirements of things, but um, in general, when an oil and gas company is done with a piece of land, then there's no obligation to restore
1: that piece of land. But when landowners decide to lease their land, they can negotiate with energy companies to develop the infrastructure in ways that will minimize damage to their property. And when production has stopped, require them to restore the land. But even then, a place like the Chihuahuan Desert takes an extremely long time to heal. Mary Lou points out that the impact on the land isn't limited to oil and gas. Solar requires a lot of acreage to produce energy on a commercial scale.
2: It's not just that they come out and put poles in the ground and put a solar panel on it. They scrape the ground and level it. They take out the vegetation. And then there are certain impacts from that. Chihuahuan Desert or any desert ecosystem is very slow to regrow hundreds of years sometimes.
1: Publicly, Respect Big Bend is not seeking any changes in policy they're not even seeking any specific outcomes. Much of the energy developed in the region is still speculative. But based on the research the group has funded, West Texas is likely to be, quote, the most energy-intensive area in the world for decades to come. Mary Lou has seen the devastation in parts of the Permian, and she knows a similar cycle has played out with booms all over the world.
2: I've lived through it. Many people have lived through it. And it's the legacy of what oil and gas firms do when they move in. They're manic, they get depressed, and they move out. Leaving a devastated town behind is part of the worst of the legacy of the industry. And they don't just do it here, they do it globally.
1: Mary Lou is working hard to try and ensure that some of the mistakes she's seen in the Permian aren't repeated in the Transpacus region. She's not really optimistic about the future.
2: Well, I have a 14-year-old daughter, and I hold her tight and think, God help you. And I'm not a climate crisis person, but based on science, we're way behind the curve, and 30 years from now or 40 years from now or however many years isn't good enough. And I just don't think human nature is capable of that level of cooperation, I don't think we're smart enough to figure out the technology, and I don't think we have enough money to deploy it in 10 years.
1: As someone who works on behalf of an organization that made its billions from fracking and natural gas, Mary Lou says that it's not their mission to stop energy from being developed in the region, but she does hope to at least protect certain beloved corners of the Big Bend.
2: You know, Every time I drive here, driving into the park, driving from the park to Terlingua, and then back at night with a full moon. It's mystical, it's um, haunting, it's majestic, it's not like any other place.
3: Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about...
1: We met at Marfa Public Radio on the town's main street. If I had to judge the book by its cover, I'd have pegged Coyne as a farmer. He wore Wranglers and an insulated work jacket. His hair was clipped into a buzz cut and his face was ruddy from the sun. But Coyne is a scientist, with a deep history in oil and gas.
3: I was born in Midland, Texas, in the heart of the Permian Basin. And I've I've lived everywhere in Texas, that has an Air Force base is mm. uh, one, one way to look at things. My family comes from uh, an oil and gas background uh, over the last rough four generations. Mm. So it's been part of my life you know, forever.
1: Coyne was also frank about the fact that he receives oil and gas royalties from his family's mineral rights, though he's hoping to divest soon. Today, Coyne is a member of a local group called the Big Bend Conservation Alliance. As a young man, Coin went to work in the oil and gas industry like three generations of his family before him. But one day in 1982, everything changed. He was working a gig in Wyoming at a sour gas processing facility. Sour gas is a natural gas that contains significant amounts of hydrogen sulfide, a poisonous gas that smells like rotten eggs. It can be deadly even in small doses. One day, Coyne was on his way to the facility when something struck him as odd.
3: We were on a bus, and I was sitting next to the site safety manager, and it struck me as odd that there were cows where there shouldn't have been any cows. And about every 50 to 75 yards, there was a bamboo pole with a a windsock on it. And so I asked the guy, I said, what's this all about? And he said, well, if you ever see a downed cow look at the windsock and run upstream, And because he said those cows are gonna be down from a sour gas leak. And so we use them like the canary in the coal mine. And that just, it was some profound thing for me. And when we got to the site, I worked the day out. And at the end of the day, I said, "You know, I'm going home tomorrow, I'm done. And I, I left the industry that day.
1: There was a small town nearby, and he was haunted by the thought that something might happen to the folks living there.
3: I walked away uh, from the industry itself, uh, but I've stayed. You know, I, I, I this sounds strange, but I followed that project uh, pretty much on a weekly basis over over my entire life mm-hmm. to make sure that nothing was going wrong with that plant.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, the the notion that that could happen was just uh, you know almost un, unbearable.
1: After leaving oil and gas, Coyne got a job in the semiconductor industry working as an engineer. And since then, he's helped run a few different tech companies. About eight years ago, he moved to the Fort Davis area in far west Texas. Today, he lives and works at a university research facility in the Davis Mountains, just north of Marfa. The Davis Mountains are probably best known for being the home of the McDonald Observatory a world-renowned astronomy center with several powerful telescopes. The site was chosen for its spectacularly dark skies.
3: So I live on top of a 6,700-foot-tall mountain that's got a 360-degree view from horizon to horizon. So my horizon distance is 92 and a half miles.
1: When he used to look north toward the Permian Basin, he'd see nothing but natural dark sky.
3: Today, I look out in that same direction, over that same west to east horizon, and I see what looks like sunrise. So we all know that the sun doesn't rise in the north.
1: Coyne first noticed new hints of light on the horizon in 2012, and no, this wasn't the famous Marfa lights. He was curious, so he started taking measurements of the sky's brightness. Then, he dug deeper.
3: And I began to do research and I found um, NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency, uh, maintains a network of uh, polar orbiting satellites that look down at the Earth. They have a, what's called VIRS, um an infrared imaging system on them. And so these are satellites in orbit. They look down at the ground and they can see in the infrared, they can see flares. And so you can, you can get a coordinate on the ground, You can spectrally uh, analyze what's coming from the light from those flares. And you can tell the flare intensity, its temperature. You can tell if it's a flare as opposed to an exhaust stack from something else or a street light. So you can clearly identify what this is.
1: While mapping and analyzing the data, he noticed a major uptick around 2014. The number of flares increased, as did their duration, Flares aren't allowed to burn for more than 10 consecutive days, but companies can apply for extensions. Coin says that many exceeded the 10-day window.
3: So I would actually drive out to some of these sites and photograph and video, record them. And we would send them to certain company executives and say, you know, this appears to be a flare operating at your, your pad site. Would you like to comment on that? And they would tell us things like, no, we're not flaring. You know, you have the video evidence, you have the Veers night fire evidence, you have all the, you know, you, here, here's a picture of your, your flare stack in operation. Oh, no, we're not flaring. That is maddening. And, you know, we've had interesting encounters where I'm on the right-of-way of a public highway and to be accosted and threatened and told, you can't photograph this. You know, and I know my rights under the law. And, you know, but to have to be challenged by that and then to have someone deny that it's actually taking place with the evidence, you know, right in front of them is pretty astonishing and, and very disingenuous. Um, you know, they have a right to, to make money and profit. I'm not denying that, but not necessarily at our expense.
1: Coin says that over 18 months, there was a 40% increase in sky brightness.
3: The first time that I remember looking up at the night sky out here, um, I couldn't recognize a, co- a single constellation. The, the, the vast number of stars overwhelmed the, the sky, the, the city boy sky that I was, you know had been seeing most of my life, to look up and see the, the Milky Way stretch from horizon to horizon is a moving thing. To have a friend come out to visit and they look up and say, what are those clouds? <laughs> and I said, those are not clouds, those are stars. You know, that's a moving experience. To be particularly at the new moon, to be out and the, the sounds that go with that night sky. So birds, uh, there are all kinds of species that need that dark sky to to thrive. You have to hear the coyotes howl, to you know, hear the the uh, birds of prey that are operating at night. And as the sky gets brighter, one of the things I've noticed is a decrease in those kinds of natural sounds. You know, fewer sounds of crickets, uh, You know, fewer cicadas, uh, fewer fireflies.
1: The dark skies aren't the only part of Coyne's life that's been affected. Growing up in Midland, Coin remembers visiting balmoray State Park, home of the world's largest spring-fed swimming pool. The place is beloved by Texans across the state. Going there for the first time, it almost seems like you're seeing a mirage.
3: You know, we're all, we all realize, I think, that we're living in a desert. We're in the middle of the Chihuahua Desert. So the first thing was Balmurea was this, excuse me, beautiful o- oasis. I mean, I remember it being just, you know, it, I'm, it takes my breath away to talk about it. You know, that whole area, I drove it, you know, as, as a kid. And what you would see was cotton, alfalfa, melons, you know, beautiful irrigated uh, cropland. And now it's a wasteland. There are flares burning at ground level. Uh, If you drive it at night, it looks like you're driving through Mordor. Despite this,
1: Coyne is careful not to condemn the entire industry. As someone who's grown up here and worked in oil and gas, his concerns are nuanced.
3: I don't want to paint with the broad brush that says that everybody that works in oil and gas is bad. Um, you know, people are, are doing the best they can, they've got a job, they're trying to feed their family, pay their mortgage, all that good stuff. Um, and, and it's also not the case that we can just leave all of it in the ground. There are some products that we produce from hydrocarbons that are, are needed. I'm not advocating, nor am I silly enough to claim that we, you know, we don't need those things. So, you know, it's not, it's not as if we can all make choices and just walk away from oil and gas uh, today and everything is better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that that's ridiculous. But the the way we're doing it now, without any regard for stewarding the resources, without any regard for the, the harm that we're doing to people and the environment, you know, I disagree with that.
1: While plenty of people have pointed out the environmental problems caused by the industry, Coyne argues that transitioning to renewable energy is essential to the economic stability of the region. The potential for wind and solar in the Permian Basin is huge. Though both solar and wind require far fewer workers than oil and gas, the jobs would be consistent in the long term, less prone to boom and bust. Right now, there's an ongoing debate about how long we'll continue using hydrocarbons and at what rate.
3: There's probably a 25 to 50 year horizon uh, for this kind of activity. Um, And really, that's it. And so, uh, you know, from an investor perspective, um, if I were, you know, early in my investing activity, would I be heavily invested in oil and gas despite big returns today? The answer is no, because there's there's an end to that.
1: Coin doesn't see development in the Transpecus as inevitable. He's fighting every way he can. Coin has focused a lot of his efforts on reforming eminent domain laws. In Texas, if an oil or gas company declares their pipeline is a, quote, public utility, companies can basically use eminent domain to take any land for their project, no matter how landowners feel. That's what happened in the Big Bend a few years ago when Ranch Land was seized to build a natural gas pipeline going from the Permian to Mexico. Coyne is lobbying the Texas State Legislature to make changes. Do you see any political appetite for some of that reform? Like, is that building any steam, or are we still pretty just... Is it a pretty uphill battle? It's
3: a pretty uphill battle. You know, I had a a conversation with uh, somebody that I'm not going to name them, um, somebody I respect deeply. the conversation went something like, um, you know, can you help us in the ledge? And the answer was "Coin, you know, that the one thing you can do to commit political suicide in Texas is oppose oil and gas.
1: For Coin, this fight is about more than protecting the beauty of far west Texas.
3: So with a background in science, I'm, I'm terrified. Um, climate change is real. I have direct access to a continuous data set from one microclimate environment for the last 86 years. So, you know, I can see that in the data, and we all ought to be terrified of, you know, we're, we're going to at some point reach a tipping point, point. and we may already have. And when we talk about the consequences um, of 700 million cubic feet of day of, you know, methane being burned and converted into CO2, and then no telling how much of that's vented directly to the atmosphere through other fugitive emissions, uh, along with everything else that goes along with it. Um, you know, it's like we, we've set ourselves on fire and and uh, are somehow enjoying it. You know, it's crazy.
1: I asked Coyne where he gets the motivation to keep fighting despite the obstacles.
3: You know, I don't know exactly how to say this. It'll be ineloquent. If you come out here You either love this place or you hate it. Um, There's just something about it. There's something about the ground, the air, the sky, just, you know, that you get it. And most people that are out here are not out here because they they have to be. They're out here because they want to be. There's there's other places people could go. And most folks that I meet, they came here purposely. And they came here because, you know, they love this place.
1: The day after my conversation with Coyne, I headed north through the Davis Mountains toward the Permian Basin. As I neared Balmaray, the familiar signs of the boom came into view. And by the time I hit Cayenosa, the horizon was strung on all sides with black smoke rising from flares. The sides of the roads were lined with shredded tires and oil-filled trash. Sand haulers and rigs were packed onto the roads. I had hardly left the big bend, but it was like I was in a different world. I thought back to the song Craig played for me at his ranch.
0: No, this ain't heaven. We're living in. You gotta watch out for troubles around us.
1: Back in the Permian Basin, I stopped in at a place I know pretty well. Dad, you're older, so you get to go first. i <laughs> I'm
0: not older. I thought we were just going to have a conversation here.
1: Well, we are, but I have to ask you a few questions to set it up. I'm sitting at the kitchen table with my mom and dad at their home in Andrews. My mom had made dinner, and we were just finishing up our chocolate meringue pie. I wanted to talk to them about their lives in the Permian Basin. My parents were born and raised here. The story goes that before they got together, they were both engaged to different people. My mom was at the Midland Mall looking for a wedding dress when she ran into my uncle Skeet. Mom asked him about my dad, and they wound up meeting up. The rest is history.
4: Well, and I always tell my parents, I'm going to marry him. So what's going
1: on? I'm hearing a weird, like, boom,
3: boom.
4: It's my heartbeat. We're talking about our love, our love affair. <laughs> oh,
3: my gosh. <laughs> the Permian was
1: in the midst of a terrible bust. So after getting married, they took off west to Phoenix and later California. They were chasing dreams and paychecks. They didn't want to return to their dusty hometown. But they eventually did because they thought it was the best thing for my brothers and I. And they've ended up spending their entire lives here. They talk a lot about the kind of work ethic you learned growing up in West Texas and the lifelong relationships you have with friends and family. At the same time, they didn't necessarily want us to stick around forever. So it's like multifaceted, right? You, you wanted to move here to raise kids, but you also said that you're glad that we all left. Yeah. And so that seems kind of like a bittersweet scenario.
4: Well, I just think with like our kids, we realize that there is, there's so much beyond West Texas and of course, I mean, all of you guys are so artistic and, and we saw that, that you had such desires and dreams and things that were so far beyond what you would ever be able to experience or, or really fulfill here that you're right, it was very bittersweet.
1: The Permian Basin is a place of stark contradictions. Despite growing up here, despite returning here after college to work in the old patch, despite doing an 11-episode podcast here, I still struggle to fully wrap my mind around the place. The Permian made me who I am, but like Mom and Dad have said, I had to leave to become who I wanted to be. But I still carry West Texas with me, I care about what happens to this region, and I understand that changes in the industry not only affect the bigwigs in Houston, they affect my friends, my family.
4: What I think you understand, because you've heard this from us before, is that, you know, people talk about big oil, and they start talking about, oh, well, we're glad, like, prices fell because big oil is, like, suffering, but big oil is all of us. It's the small guys. That's not what people, most people think of as big oil. And for us out here, that's what we think of as big oil. Yeah. We're, we're
0: the worker bees and um, we get our cut. I mean, we, we get our cut.
4: But at the same time, we've got to actually realize that, you know, carbon fuels are not going to be here forever. That's not what's going to. That it's not forever. I mean, the sun is forever. The wind is forever. We'll never get away from those things, and so we've got to invest in those things. We really, really have got to um, come to a place where we're real realistic, and we're honest with each other, and we say, you know, we've got we've got to marry all of these things. We've got the renewables. We've got we've got. Um, petroleum energy, we've got all these things, and we've got to marry them, and we've got to be very um, systematic in how we, we move forward and find the best solution.
1: My mom's way of thinking isn't all that unusual in the Permian. In all my time reporting out here, besides coin, I'm not sure I ever heard anyone use the phrase climate change. But I found that Permian folks are much more thoughtful about our energy future than most. It's easy to believe that our world should be powered by renewable energy, but people out here know our reliance on crude runs deep. So much of our daily lives are affected by oil, but they see it up close every day. What happens here affects the world both economically and environmentally, but Permian residents experience the consequences much more directly and to the extreme.
4: But it is hard, you know, because we do we do own this home. We do own our property here, and we do plan, I guess, plan to stay here, at least make this our home base for a very long time. And you do hope that there will be water, that air quality will be good, that things will be okay, and that the economy will be good. Because if it's not, then everything that we've invested in is null. Mm -hmm. You know? This is where we are. It's where we've chosen to be and where where we've ended up. And I guess we'll live and die by it. So, it's what it is. It is... What
1: it is? Never heard of that one before.
4: <laughs> Not once, right? No. Uh,
1: is there anything else you all want to add?
4: Is there anything else you want to ask?
1: How do I end this <laughs> freaking podcast? So I'm leaving the Permian Basin for the last time on this reporting trip, uh, for my last time reporting Boomtown. And um, just south of McKamey, kind of on the southeastern edge of the Permian Basin. It's a place where the flatness gives rise to these plateaus of limestone and scrub brush, mesquite. This place that I'm at right now I can count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. 12 pump jacks in about probably a 100 yards radius. Alright. I'm in Upton County right now, not far from where the first oil well, the Santa Rita number one, the first commercial oil well was drilled out here that started this whole thing. And also the same county where the Martinez men were killed in a blowout on their rig. This place is so vitally important to the rest of the world. And yet so few people understand it or know it, you know, When I tell people where I'm from, a lot of times people say, oh, I'm sorry. And I know they're just joking or whatever, but at the same time, it's my home. And it's, there's a lot to be proud of out here. And honestly, so much of the world would be different for better and for worse if this place did not exist and if the people out here didn't work as hard and weren't as innovative as they have been. And there's, A lot of complicated things and in some ways I have more questions now eight months after we first started really a year after we first started than I did going in you know I'm I feel even more conflicted in some ways you know it's kind of funny I'm surrounded by all these pump jacks but there's also windmills on on the ridgeline all around me in every direction But seeing these windmills turning on the horizon, watching these pump jacks bob up and down, I have to say it does give me some, a little bit of hope. And while there is a storm to the west and to the north bearing down on me right now, promising all kinds of bad, bad weather, it's, uh, and I'm not even making this up for a good metaphor, (laughs) uh, there's a sunny sky ahead, and... That's uh, thankfully that's the direction I'm headed. I'll miss you West Texas till next time. I'm Christian Wallace. And this was Boomtown. Boomtown is a co-production of Imperative Entertainment and Texas Monthly. Executive producer is Jason Hope. Produced and engineered by Brian Sandifer, who also wrote the score. Boomtown is edited by J.K. Nickel and Megan Kreit. Co-reporter is Leif Riegstad. Our theme song is written and performed by Pake Rossi. Pedal Steel played throughout the series by Jeff Queen. Thank you to Emily Kimbrough and Nick Simonite for the amazing artwork and photographs. Thanks to our ace intern, Asa Canty. I'm your host and writer, Christian Wallace. Special thanks to all our partners, loved ones, children, and generally anyone who not only tolerated our schedules, but were our biggest cheerleaders over the past eight months. This episode was made with help from the crew at Marfa Public Radio. Thanks to Mitch Borden for his work reporting and researching this episode. If you're outside of West Texas, you can follow them at marfapublicradio.org. Texas Monthly's parent company also owns interests in the midstream oil and gas industry, among other diversified investments. Our editorial judgments are made independently of any such investments. And finally, a special thanks to all of you who have tuned in, left a review, and told your friends about Boomtown. We hope you've enjoyed the journey.
0: I got into the sink and I was looking and I had a gallon of vinegar under there I was like... I went to the shower, dude, just raw white vinegar. So anyway, I vinegarized and I was good the next day, I mean I was just, everything healed up the next day, like vinegarized.
3: stop. Vinegarized. Yeah.